So a couple weeks ago, while we were on vacation, my wife was looking over my dog, Brutus, and, you know, doing a little investigation of him, and she noticed that he had a tick. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a tick. If you haven't, there one is. That's, that's just to give you nightmares tonight. It's just creepy, right? And the thing had burrowed into the skin of Brutus, and Alicia saw this large, very gnarly-looking tick, and she did what you do. She called over her husband, and she said, Josh, come and take care of this. And uh, actually, she didn't do that uh, because she knows that um, I would faint. And so instead, she actually went and got a set of tweezers, and she went and took care of it herself. And, and she said that she was working at the thing. And she said when she finally pulled it out, she said it was disgusting because it had these legs and the legs were just moving. And she just said she was so creeped out by it. And I heard that story and I thought, this is a parable. (laughs) And it's a parable of, I think, in some sense, the condition we find ourselves in the world we inhabit. You know, um, what is a tick? A tick is a foreign intruder that attaches itself to another living organism, and in so doing, it begins to negatively affect them, have a toxic effect, maybe make them sick, maybe even make them paralyzed. And what is the condition we find ourselves in? Well, according to the biblical imagination, there are foreign spiritual intruders that have afflicted God's good creation, our lives, structures around us, demonic powers, spiritual powers, that then attach themselves in odd ways to our world, to lives, and it brings destruction and spiritual paralysis and all kinds of harm. Paul puts our situation like this. He says, quote, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. Now don't misunderstand, when he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, he doesn't mean that there are not instances, of course, of wrestling with flesh and blood. Paul knew, of course, what it meant to struggle with difficult people and actually with governmental authorities. He spent time in prison, Uh, he was beat up, he was stoned, Uh, he had all kinds of problems. He knew what it meant to wrestle with flesh and blood. His point is, is that we don't only wrestle with flesh and blood. In other words, when flesh and blood or when evil takes a flesh and blood form, whether it be through rank evils like war or sex trafficking or abuse or racially motivated shootings, when it takes those flesh and blood forms that that evil is participating and, and human institutions and people are participating in something that is above and behind and beyond and that is more than merely human or natural. Or put it like this, I guess an illustration would be like this. If you've ever been uh, to Disneyland and you've been into the Haunted Mansion and you know, at, at the end of the ride, you remember what they do? Is uh, you're sitting in that little, you know, bubble thing, you know, a little like it's spinning around. And, uh, and then all of a sudden you find yourself facing the mirror and it's there, it's you and it, you know, it's your, your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend or a child or son or whatever. And, and, and there, there's a ghost that's there in the, in the little car with you. And then they send you off with something beyond just you. And in the biblical imagination, we, we are to imagine a world where there are spiritual forces that are unseen and yet real. 
uh, that we cannot see, but yet are there and that do real harm and damage to human lives. In, in other words, we are in a battle, a spiritual battle that we need to be very much aware of. Has anybody seen uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy? But there's this great scene where Gandalf is talking to King Theoden. And King Theoden has a bunch of, uh, there's, there's warfare all around him that's growing, that's increasing, that's coming. And Gandalf is encouraging him to go out and face the enemy head on. And he says this to King Theoden. He says, you must fight. And Theoden responds, I will not risk open war. And then Aragorn speaks up. He says, open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. And look, according to the biblical authors, open spiritual war is upon us, whether we would risk it or not. Or as A.W. Tozer famously said, the Christian life is not a playground, it is a battleground. And listen, until you recognize that the dimension of spiritual evil around us in this world, you will not be able to understand its depth, its pervasiveness, and its intractability, and you will not be able to deal with it. Now, we began a series in the book of Acts uh, several weeks ago now, and we've been watching together about the movement of the early Christian church. And today, as we continue on in our series, we're gonna engage in a story that is about spiritual evil. It is about the confrontation of spiritual evil. It is about the overcoming of spiritual evil. And, and I just want you to consider the possibility today that perhaps transcendent personal evil is more of a player in the modern world than we give credit. That perhaps it's more of a player in your own life than you might realize. And so here's what we're going to do today is I want to invite you to enter into this narrative with me that we just heard read, and then we're going to stand back, and I want us to kind of get some application both about the nature of spiritual evil that we face as well as what we can do in order to combat it. Now, let's set this passage in its context. So if you've been with us, especially over the last few weeks, we've seen Paul carrying out his missionary journeys. And in chapter 16, he's in Philippi. And then in chapter 17, you looked at that last week, he's at Athens. In chapter 18, he's in Corinth. And then in chapter 19, he lands in the city of Ephesus. And that's where the confrontation with the spiritual darkness takes place. But we got to know something a little bit about the city of Ephesus, because this, this was a massive uh, city of, of incredible importance for the Apostle Paul. He spent three years in this city. It is the longest time he spent in any city. In fact, you could say it was the most important ministry he probably did throughout the course of his life happened in the city of Ephesus. Uh, More churches were started through his ministry there than at any other time in his life. He was able to say, in fact, through the the teaching, there there was some kind of record because uh, it says that he spent daily for two years teaching for four, year, for four hours a day in a, in a local kind of school there. And some people have done the math and they said that's 3,120 hours of instruction from the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine the persuasive argumentation, scriptural stuff coming from the Apostle Paul? You know, for two years he's in the city of Ephesus. People are coming from all over and they travel to the city of Ephesus because Ephesus It was a big city. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It was the largest city in Asia Minor. It was a city of great financial importance and influence. But here's the thing about Ephesus. It was a dark place. 
It was spiritually dark. At the very center of the city, in fact, here's some ruins of the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is really cool. It's in modern-day Turkey, and the city of Ephesus has not been uh, built up after it was destroyed a few centuries after Christ, and so there's all these incredible ruins you can go visit today. But at the very center, the very heart of the city was this great temple, and it was a temple that was dedicated to the goddess Artemis. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People would come from all over to uh, worship at this temple. And it was built in honor of Artemis, who was arguably the most popular, the greatest, uh, believed to be the most powerful goddess in the ancient world. And so people would go there and they'd buy these little golden or these little silver statues and they would go home and they'd have these little treasures and it was a really, really significant place. And also in the city of Ephesus, it was known for its dark magic. Uh, there, there was, if you've ever been a part of a, or visited like an animistic culture, where uh, people are constantly sending spells and doing fetishes and there's amulets to protect them or your neighbor, you know, hurt you and so you sent a curse on them and you went to the local witch doctor and had them sit. This was the, it was replete. It was part of the fabric of the city of Ephesus. And isn't it interesting, it's in this dark place that the gospel took root and bid, did its most transformational work. And let's just note in passing, listen, Sometimes we think, oh, a dark, difficult place is an obstacle to the Christian gospel. Listen, it may be that a dark, you know, difficult place is actually the venue of where the gospel will take root and do its most important work. Well, at any rate, they're in the city of, of Ephesus, and um, Paul gets there and even though his ministry was incredibly fruitful, it was not without its opponents. In fact, he says at one point, referring back in the letter of 2 Corinthians, he says, there has been a great door of ministry that's opened to me in Ephesus. And also, he says, there's many people who are opposing me. And he begins his ministry, and after three months doing work in the synagogue, he's kicked out and they spread evil rumors about the Christians. The ministry ends uh, in this place. It's a, a great, you know, amphitheater, can seat 25,000 people. There's this huge riot, and Paul basically ends his ministry on a riot, and they want to tear him life and limbs, and they want to pull his buddies in and, 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 and get him killed. And so Paul wrestled with opponents. He wrestled with, with he, he did all kinds of battle in the city of Ephesus, but what I want you to see is that when he was doing battle, he was not wrestling only with flesh and blood, but also against transcendent spiritual evil. And look at how it describes it in the text. This is a little vignette of uh, something that happened in the city of Ephesus. It says this, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that get this, even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that sounds kind of weird. Like, you know, handkerchiefs and aprons. And many people believe, you know, Paul worked as a tent maker and he had these headbands that would collect his sweat. He wore an apron and it was these headbands that were sweating and the aprons that were dirty that were carried and then warded off the evil spirits. And we're like, what is that all about anyway? 
And, uh, and, and you know, there, of course, there's faith teachers that today have taken this idea and have gone into the business of selling prayer cloths. And if you send your love gift to us, we'll send you a prayer cloth and it will drive away your diseases and demons. In fact, I saw this online yesterday. Uh, prayer cloth, uh, for I will restore health to you. It's only $41.94. And if you'll notice, it's a Christian or Swanson Christian products. Do you see that? I know some of you think, that's a side hustle of Josh, but it's not like, um, anyway, like what's up? What's up with the headbands? Listen, I, I, the, the point is not that there's some efficacy in the headband or the apron. It is that Paul is an emissary. He is a representative of the authority of Jesus. And so when he goes in the name of Jesus, even his sweatbands scare the darkness away. In fact, so potent did this name, the name of Jesus, so potent was it as it was invoked on the lips of Paul that some exorcists in the neighborhood who were also engaged in that work, because that was kind of a common business back in the ancient world. When you went into these animistic cultures, you'd have to get some people to come in and cast out your demons. And they saw Paul, they're like, dang, his sweatband is driving the darkness away. Let's, let's try what he's doing, you know? Uh, when our girls were little, sometimes one of the sisters would dress like the other one or a friend would get the same outfit as the other one. They'd be like, why are they copying me, you know? And uh, we would say to them things like, you know, well, imitation is the best form of flattery, right? And here, they imitate Paul. It's the best form of flattery. And they, look, look what happens. Um, it says this, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. And so you imagine, and I just imagine, these are, these are exorcists. And so I just imagine they spend a lot of time in the gym because you got to look the part, you know, they're jacked, they're all buff, and they're seven brothers going in, and they're walking into the house of this guy who's got demons, and they're like, I adjure you uh, by the, the, what's that guy's name again? By Jesus, whom that guy, what's his, Paul preached, you know, to come out, you know, and look what happens. Uh, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and master all seven of the jacked, you know, buffed out brother. I'm just imagining that the text doesn't say that. And um, he overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, we modern people, growing up in a Western kind of secular world, we're asking, like, what are we supposed to make of this, you know? Four times in this text, there's references to evil spirits. And the evil spirit speaks. And the evil spirit uh, gives this guy so much energetic power that he beats up seven brothers. And the evil spirit is driven away by Paul's hanky. And what are we supposed to make of evil spirits anyway? Well, let me just draw out three observations about evil spirits that we learned from this text. Uh, let's talk a bit about them. Number one, the evil spirits and the evil that you see at work through them is not merely human. It is beyond human. It is transcendent evil. In other words, something more is happening in this instance than one guy, you know, beating up seven guys. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you're 
observing a situation or you're watching something, you're just like, there's something dark at work there. There's something more there. And I know we, we're, we're modern, enlightenment people, and we're trained from birth to believe that uh, everything has a naturalistic cause and therefore a scientific explanation. And yet there are some things you encounter where you just think there's something more happening. And, and this is the biblical vision, is that there is transcendent evil. There is something more at work in the world. And look, of course, when you look at rank evil in the world, ethnic cleansing and death camps and uh, genocide and racially motivated killings and people walking into schoolyards and killing a bunch of kids, and, and, and of course, there's always psychological factors and social factors and cultural factors at work, but there is something more going on there. In fact, we have this experience sometimes, don't we? It's like you, you, you read about what happened just a couple days ago in Florida, this racially motivated killer, and we just think like, what is going on there? And, and, and we bring out the psychologists and the sociologists, and they're interviewed on, on Fox News or CNN, and, and they're giving their, well, you know, he, he grew up in a home where he was abused, and, and he didn't have a father in the home, and he played violent video games, and too much access to weapons, and, and all kinds of stuff. But you add up all of the factors, and you just think, it still doesn't add up. There's always a remainder. You look at the Russian gulags, or death camps, or, or, or the Holocaust, and you just think, it doesn't add up. There's something darker going on here. And in fact, people who live through those and see them face to face, and maybe some of us have lived too privileged and charmed lives, and we're too much in a little, you know, middle-class bubble of actually experiencing rank and radical transcendent injustice and evil that we can kind of almost lose touch with this. But people who live through that are like, there's something more going on here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a sermon he preached, he, he lived through Nazi Germany. And he just said, how can one close one's eyes to the fact that the devil has taken over the world, that here the powers of darkness have made an awful conspiracy. And of course, you, there, there's stuff that you've experienced. You just think there's something more that I'm dealing with here. There's something more going on here. And in the biblical imagination, that more is spiritual forces of darkness. They're beyond merely human. But secondly, they are destructive. These are forces that wreak havoc in human life. And they wreak havoc in marriages and in homes and in neighborhoods and in nations. You just see something like a destructive force that's taking place. I don't know if you've had anybody you know who's like a meth addict. And you watch it just destroy a person's life from the inside out and their brains. And you're just like, there's something more going on there. There's something dark at work there. And, and people who've grown up in families where there's deep abuse and, and sexual abuse, and, and then there's trauma, and then that trauma has this deep hold on their life. And you just think there's something more going on there. Or, yeah, you read about any number of the events in the 20th century when we supposedly had the most technologically advanced, well-educated nations in the history of the world, modern secular people rounding up human beings and gassing them to death. And you think there's something more that we're dealing with here. There's some 
darkness here that's destructive, that's wreaking havoc. And of course, you've seen this in family systems, you've seen this in homes and in neighborhoods. Some of you have experienced this in your own life. And you get into addictions with drugs or alcohol or pornography or gambling or any number of deep addictive patterns. And those things, yeah, there's psychological factors or social factors or whatever, but there is a darkness there that gets a grip that actually starts to bring destruction where you see self-harm, where you see suicide ideation, where you see these dark narratives that people play in their mind, there's something more going on there that's destructive. And, and we wrestle not just with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. They're beyond human. They're destructive. And these dark personal spiritual forces are active, but yet they are defeated. You know, you know it's interesting. In, in the New Testament letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he closes that letter by talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, Jesus has been raised. He's ascended to the Father's right hand, and he is reigning right now. Jesus has been exalted to the highest seat of cosmic authority. He is the great victor. But then it says this, after he returns. It says, after he returns, he will destroy all of these contrary dark forces that are wreaking havoc in the world. In other words... It's kind of like D-Day and V-Day in World War II. D-Day was the day that the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, and it was the decisive victory. At that point, for all intents and purposes, the battle had been won, the war was over. But hostilities didn't cease until V-Day when when the Allied forces signed treaties, and and so too, The death and resurrection of Jesus was D-Day. It was the decisive moment in cosmic and human history where the powers of darkness were put on notice that they are passing away and this old world of darkness is passing away. But one day Christ will return and he will establish his kingdom in all of its fullness and then the darkness will finally be put out of business. But until that day, we wrestle not merely with flesh and blood, but also with powers spiritual forces of darkness in the high places. And yet they are indeed defeated enemies. And that's why when Paul does his ministry in the name of Jesus and that sweat-drenched headband goes over to the demons, the demons are like, ah, the headband of Paul, you know, and then they're out. It's because they've been defeated. And look what it says when, when When this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, when what became known? When it became known that the seven jacked guys who went into the house got beat up and taken out because they were pretenders, and the sweatband of the emissary of Jesus who came against the powers of darkness in the name and authority of Jesus came, and those forces were driven out, when, they, when that became known to the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The name of Jesus should not be treated simply as a phrase we use when we're exacerbated. The name of Jesus is the name that is above every other name in heaven and on earth. And fear came upon all, and look what happens next. 
many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. It's interesting, over the course of these two years, many people came to faith in Jesus who are part of this animistic culture. And what did they have at home? Well, they had stuff from their past. They had their amulets that they used to ward off the, the dark forces, and they had their, their spills and their little books that they used to cast spills on neighbors and stuff, and they're like, well, we trust Jesus now, but we got to keep all this other stuff just in case. But when they saw the power of the name of Jesus, they came out and they confessed, and person after person in, in hordes came out, and they brought all of their amulets and all of their magic books and all of the spell books, and it says they brought all their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I'm not exactly, that's a lot of money. And I don't know about you, but I thought, like, couldn't they have sold that on Craigslist and then invested in the church or the poor? Listen, sometimes there's some darkness that's in your home. There's some darkness that you have your hands on that the only thing to be done with it is to bring it out and to burn it. Get rid of the stuff. You know, it's funny, my, my mother-in-law was telling me a story when she was a little kid. She said that her brother uh, got into dealing weed, you know, and she said that he, um, he, 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 her mom discovered this big old pile of weed like in his bedroom. And so she's like, we got to get rid of this. And so she, she took it and she threw it and she burned it in the fireplace. <laughs> and, um, and she said she came home from school one day and there's smoke coming up and she's like, it smells like weed everywhere and the whole neighborhood is so happy, you know, and... <laughs> There's some stuff that needs to be brought out and burnt. Now, don't trivialize what's going on here. They're not burning Harry Potter books. They're not burning Dungeons and Dragons games that young adults have fun playing together. These are not, uh, this is not a trite, superficial thing. These are dark, real, spiritual stuff that they've got hidden in their homes that they have been calling upon dark spiritual powers with, and it's got a grip on their lives, and it's this that they're bringing out and they're disposing of. And it was costly. And their dramatic repentance, bringing all this darkness out, it had its impact. Look what it says. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And I love that phrase, it prevailed mightily. And the implication is, is that as they were engaged in deep repentance, as they were hearing and trusting in the name of Jesus to be their protector and their provider and not their old idols that they used to lean on, God's word was beginning to prevail mightily in their own lives and in that city. And the story ends. Actually, it continues on. You should read the rest. It's great, but we're going to stop right there. And let me just ask this question. What are we supposed to do with this? Like, what are we supposed to do with a text like this that reveals to us this truth about transcendent evil? You know, it, it's, there's, there's something beyond human. There's something destructive. There's something active yet defeated at work. And like, like okay, I've got to get up tomorrow and go to school or work. Like, what am I, like, what am I supposed to do with this? And I want to suggest that this story should do at least three things for us. Number one, it should put us on notice that we are in over our heads. 
We are in over our heads. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like the feeling of not being in control. Do you? You know, I grew up in Southern California, and so uh, I grew up with the terror of two things as a child of the 80s in Southern California. The first was nuclear holocaust, because that was, you know, the Cold War. The second thing, of course, was the big one. It was that the San Andreas Fault was finally going to shift, and, uh, you know, Long Beach was going to drop into the ocean. <laughs> and, um, and then God moved our family to live in Sierra Madre, which is right on top of the San Andreas Fault. <laughs> but, you know, here's the thing about an earthquake, is when the ground starts to shake, you realize quick that you are not in control. And some of you, you are really good at being in control. You control, you know, the details of your home and your room and the car and your spouse and your children, and you are carefully controlling everything. Your fingers are in them like the tick was in the dog, you know, and you've got it all, and you're so good, you've even convinced yourself that you're in control, you've got it all figured out. But listen, it doesn't take much to shake that confidence and to wake you up and to say, you are not in control. We are all in way over our heads. And have you ever had that experience? You actually get engaged in, in, a, dar in a battle against some darkness. There's a family member who is trapped in the bondage of addiction. There is a, a, another person who is just racked with trauma from, from, from abuse as a child. There's another situation, you travel overseas and, and you're working with an organization that's fighting against systemic injustice and oppression. And, and you, you get engaged in the system, you get engaged in the lives, and you realize you are powerless against what you are facing. There is something here that goes way beyond your pay grade and it's outside of your control. We are in over our heads. And what this should always drive us to do is it should drive us to fall on our knees and to cry out to God who is more powerful than the powers that afflict our lives. That's why Paul, when he talks about not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, he ends that whole passage by talking about prayer. The way we do battle against these kind of enemies is first and foremost on our knees in dependence upon a power that is greater than ourselves and what we have the capacities of doing. So number one, we are in over our heads. I think the second thing that this text I think is revealing to us is that in this battle, it may be that there is some dark stuff you need to confess and excise out of your life. You know, it's just true in the story, right? Like, the reaction, th there were these believers who kept back these things that still had some sort of stranglehold on their lives, and they experienced freedom from the gospel. The gospel prevailed over the darkness after they brought it out into the light. Listen, so often addictions and stuff you're enslaved to, uh, sins, they are like film, they develop in, in the dark. They fester there. You need to bring stuff out into the light and divulge what's going on in your life. And of course, 
There's different spaces you can do that in. You can do that with, with a trusted friend or a spouse or a support group, or, or maybe some of you, you need to go to a therapist, a trusted therapist, and begin to unpack and bring out some of that darkness that you've been dealing with and you've been carrying. You don't need to carry that anymore by yourself. That can be brought out into the light and the Spirit of God through the power of Christ can begin to deal with that stuff in your life over a long process. And look, some of you, you might be in a place where you're in your life right now, you're stuck in something, and you heard groups today, we're talking about Celebrate Recovery, and you need to get in recovery. And you're afraid to show up on a Tuesday night because you fear like, oh, I'm, I, if, if I go there, people are gonna know that I don't have my life together and I need help. Listen, newsflash for us all, no one in this room has their life together and all of us need help. And I've done a lot of counseling in my life. There's a lot of need in this room. And we cannot carry it alone. We need community. We need to come out in the light. We need to divulge stuff in community with friends, with therapists, with pastors, with support groups. And and so you need to bring stuff out and divulge it. You know, the, the, the darkness trembles when people come out into the light. So there is dark stuff in your, in your life that you might need to confess and excise. But thirdly and finally, listen, we learn from this passage not only that we are in over our heads and not only that there is some dark stuff you need to confess and excise, the third thing we learn in this passage is that Jesus is more powerful than any darkness you face. This is our confidence. Jesus is more powerful than the darkness that afflicts the world, the darkness that has manifested itself in gulags and in death camps and in death marches and in abuse. There's so much darkness in the world. Who are we kidding? Who are we fooling ourselves, you know? Who are we fooling? There is so much darkness but Jesus is more powerful than any darkness we face in this world. And listen, Jesus Christ came into the world. He entered into darkness so that he might on the cross defeat its power, so that on the cross he might put on display and expose the falseness of the powers of darkness that say we are all there is in this world. Jesus says, no, suffering love is stronger than darkness. My cross-shaped love will break the darkness. And then he walked out of the tomb on Sunday morning to say that his life is stronger than the powers of death and darkness. Listen, Jesus is more powerful than the darkness. The demons tremble at the sweatband of the one who carries the authority of Jesus. You know, at this time, I want to invite our band to come up. And I want to close with this. You know, Paul wrote four letters, many scholars believe, from the city of Ephesus while he spent a a, a short time in prison there. And one of those letters that he wrote carries the title to the church in Ephesus. 
and it was meant to be read not only to the churches that he had founded around Ephesus that he could no longer be out and about with, but also to be carried around to other churches around those areas, other churches that feared darkness, that thought that darkness might have the final word over their lives. And in the letter that he wrote to these churches, he said this. He said, I pray that you might know. I pray that you all might know what is the incomparably great power that God has for us who believe. It is that same power, the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And you know what news this text announces to us? Jesus is the head over everything. All of the darkness is under his feet. And where are you in this narrative? You are his body. You are connected to the one who is over everything that is dark, that works for your destruction. It does not have to have the final word in your life. You can look to him. You can lean on him. You can trust him. And it might require a process or a journey or counseling or friends or a support group or any number of things that Christ in his body has supplied for us. But darkness will not, it cannot have the final say over your life because Christ has been raised from the dead and he is Lord over everything. And that's very, very, very good news. I want to invite you to stand. So we sing this final song and let's declare these words Together, the chorus goes like this. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Let's declare that together through our song.